you all out on this Saturday night to worship God with us and study with us. We appreciate your being here. I just, it's, y'all, y'all are, are testing me by stuffing me full of food and then asking me to get up here and talk for a while. Uh, went over to Glenn and Kathy's house this evening and it was, it was very good and had good time, good company. Uh, but, uh, I feel like I've, I've got a bowling ball in my stomach from her biscuits right now. So, <laughs> But we'll be all right. We'll get through this. Um, as, as Adam said, you know, last night we looked at Matthew 19, where the Pharisees come and ask Jesus, is it lawful or, or is it right to divorce your wife for any reason? And we saw that, that Jesus' answer to them was, number one, have you not read? You know, because he, he, he appeals to the scriptures for his answers, to the word of God, as we should. That doesn't matter what psychologists say, doesn't matter what public opinion says, doesn't matter what philosophers say. What, what does God, our creator, say about the subject of marriage and the human family? And, uh, and then he said, have you not read in the beginning? And so Jesus takes us all the way back to Adam and Eve, the first two human beings, as the prototype for marriage. Now tonight, we're going to start in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13 and, and verse 4. And, and there, uh, the King James Version, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Or the English Standard Version, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Marriage is honorable. The Hebrew writer ha has spent a good deal of his letter uh, talking about Christ and how Christ and the gospel and the New Testament are superior to the old law and the old priesthood. And, and then there's a section of the book where he's encouraging his readers to, to have faith and to hang in there and to have endurance and, and to be willing to withstand sufferings and persecutions. And then you get down to chapter 13, down to the end of the letter. Of course, there were no chapter divisions when the book was originally written. It, it was a letter written to Christians and, and, and he just gets into some, uh, you know, some thoughts about how we ought to live as Christians from day to day. And he talks about love in verse 1, brotherly love. And he talks about hospitality in verse 2. And he talks about uh, compassion and sympathy for those who are suffering in verse 3. And then he gets to this statement about marriage. That marriage is to be held in honor. In honor. And... Marriage is precious. Marriage is holy. It is pure. It is right because God created it. God has ordained three things, three institutions on earth, and all three of them are for our benefit. And I think there's some similarities here. Number one, government. Government has a purpose, the Bible tells us. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, uh, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil 
and to praise those who do good. And in Romans 13 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul says for every person to be subject to the, to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. God saw fit that we need order in our society, in our world, to, to get along. And, and as we said last night, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. God is an orderly God. He, he is wise, and He is all-knowing, and He creates things with purpose, and He creates things that are logical, and it makes sense. The, the created order, the universe that we inhabit, has predictable natural laws. And if I, if I take this book and I let go of it right here, you know what's going to happen. It's going to go down. It's going to fall toward the center of the earth because gravity. And gravity is consistent and it's predictable. And, and, and ecosystems in our, in our world that coexist with each other. And, and everything that God does is, is organized and orderly. And, and God uh, has ordained government. I don't think that means that God picks out every president and every governor and every king and every emperor in the history of the world. But God has set forth that it is a good thing for us to have structure in our lives because if there were no speed limits and there were no stop signs and there were no traffic lights, I mean, it, it'd just be an utter zoo every time you tried to get out and go somewhere, wouldn't it? And, and, and people would be getting hurt and killed and cars and buildings and property would be getting damaged. And, and as much as we like to rant and complain about government, government's a good thing, isn't it? We, we need it. And, and, and Paul says that, that God has ordained that. The church. The church is an institution here on earth, again, created by God, that, that, that has great value to us. 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, Paul writes, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church has a responsibility to uphold the truth, to proclaim the truth, to share the truth with those around it. Ephesians 3 verses 10 and 11 refers to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. The church is a fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. The church, and again, the church is an orderly thing that, that, that we can read our New Testament and it tells us what its function should be and it tells us what its worship involves and it tells us its organizational structure. And, and you know, in regard to government, there, there are people that, that don't like the concept of government. There are anarchists out there that just want to do away with all governments. And, and in religious matters, uh, it, it's not that God's will is hard to understand, but, but again, as people, we come along with our traditions and our pre, uh, prejudices and our wants and our wishes, and we start tinkering with things and, and changing things that God has established to suit ourselves. And, and pretty soon, religion has devolved into chaos of hundreds or thousands of denominations that teach conflicting things. And God instituted marriage. God instituted the concept of, of the home, of the family. 
As we saw last night, Christ said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage was created by the same orderly God, the same rational God that created the other things. And just like government and religion, man is seldom satisfied with God's pattern. And we seek to change it. And people seek to redefine what marriage is and what a family is. And we think that we know better than our Creator how those things should function. And the result is chaos. Chaos in our society in so many different ways. Marriage has a purpose. Mar marriage has several purposes. Marriage has a purpose of companionship. Again, as we read last night, Genesis 2 verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God's made us a helper with our spouse, someone comparable, suitable to us, someone to complement us. We, we need someone to talk to. We need someone to lean on. We need someone to share our lives with. And, and God has provided that because God knows what we need better than we do because he, again, he designed us. He designed the model so he, he knows how it how it should function, and how it should operate. And in Malachi 2, verse 14, uh, Malachi says of our wives, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Our wife, our husband, they're our companion. We, we get companionship. We, uh, uh, we're, we're lonely, left to ourselves. We need someone that we can converse with, someone we can talk to, someone we can share our hopes and our dreams and our fears and, and our frailties and, and our problems with. And, and as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, two are stronger than one. You know, we can go out and tackle life and the world together. Marriage has a purpose of companionship. Marriage has a... Um, uh, Proverbs 31... Verses 10 and 11 is, is the passage where Solomon writes, or, or the writer there of Proverbs writes about the, the virtuous woman, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will have no lack of gain. We need somebody we can trust, somebody we can rely on. You know, there, there are things... That, that, that maybe I, I don't want to tell all my coworkers. I need somebody else that I can confide in. I need someone else I can talk to. I need someone that, that I know is always going to be there and be supportive of me if I'm worried, if I'm scared, if I'm happy, if I'm jubilant, whatever the case may be. And, and we point out here, her husband's heart trusts in her. She's trustworthy. She's there for her husband. He depends upon her. The home has a purpose. 
The home should help us to grow spiritually. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter states that, that my relationship to my spouse affects my relationship to my creator. That, that if my relationship to my wife or husband, as the case may be, is, is not what it should be, that's going to cause my religious life to suffer. My spirituality is going to suffer. We ought to be each other's strongest supporter in getting us to heaven. The purpose for the home. And for marriage. And, and, and there's a purpose for marriage in, in carrying on the human race and reproduction. There in, in Malachi 2, and we looked at that passage again last night where, where Malachi talks about how God hates divorce and, and, and it's treachery against our spouse. And, and he says in verse 15, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Godly offspring. That, that marriage is the perfect, the, the best environment for raising children up to become godly people when they become adults, to have both a father and a mother who love one another and love them and want to guide them in God's word. Back in Genesis 18, when God decides that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain, and Abraham's nephew Lot is living in Sodom with his wife and his two daughters, and God uh, God decides to fill Abraham in on what he's about to do. And he says there in verse 19, For I have chosen him, talking about Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. See, that, that's a purpose of us as parents is to bring our children up to understand who God is and understand what God's will is. And God had confidence in Abraham that that's what he was doing, that he was going to raise the next generation to do what was right and to seek after God. We look around us at the, the current state of the world. Since 1960, about 60 years, the marriage rate has declined by a third and the divorce rate has doubled. You know, we, we hear these statistics all the time. Half the marriages end in divorce and, and you know, we, we just kind of become numb to that. In 1974, divorce replaced death as the principal cause of family disillusion. Prior to that, the main reasons families were dissolved was because somebody died. But from that point on, it was divorce. And of course, divorce has just become more and more and more commonplace as we've gone on. And so recent estimates are that over 40% of the children in the U.S. are born outside of marriage. You know, they don't have a father there with them when they're born. 
And that was just 28% in 1990, which is still a huge number. But, but it's almost half. Almost half the kids that are born in America today don't, don't have a daddy that's there when they're born. And, and more than 70% of all marriages in the U.S. are preceded by cohabitation now because, hey, we, we need to try this out and see if it's going to work, right? Isn't that kind of the rationale that people use? Well, well, it hasn't worked. It hasn't brought down the divorce rate by people cohabiting before they get married, has it? Now, man, man's ideas often don't pan out the way that we think they will. One in three children in the U.S. live in a single-parent family. A, a third of them. Okay, well, what, what? so what, Randy? Who, who cares? Well... Uh, we, we have the world's highest rate of children living in a single parent in, here in the United States. And children growing up in a single parent home are 14 times more likely to commit rape, 20 times more likely to end up in prison, 32 times more likely to run away from home. Uh, you want some more statistics? 63% of youth suicides are from children that are people that have grown up in fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 85% uh, of all children with behavior problems come from fatherless homes. I see a trend developing. 85% of youths in prison come from fatherless homes. 71% of pregnant teenagers are raised without a father. 71% of all children who abuse substances come from fatherless homes. But society, our government, you know, you know pe people have, have taught us that dads are disposable. Dads don't matter. Dads aren't important. Uh, we, we, have a, we have state and federal government agencies that, that rather than promoting strengthening of families, promote dissolving families, but because women can get more money if they don't have a husband, to, to, and, and you know, the, the more kids they raise, and, and we live in a culture that, that has told men that the value of their manhood is how many women they can go out and make pregnant. And, and, and the, the society just doesn't expect them to take any responsibility for their actions. And, and the world just seems great with that. And yet all these problems that I've just flashed across the screen for the past couple of minutes, you know, a lot of these problems that, that we combat and we just don't know what to do about them, and, and why if, if kids just had both a mother and a father that, that were committed to each other, a lot of these problems would go away. Because God's smarter than we are. And when we try to outguess God's order, we generally make a mess of things. And so the, the writer of Hebrews says, marriage is to be held in honor among all. To be held in honor. The, the author is promoting marriage in the mind of his readers uh, to its rightful place as a divine ordinance because 2,000 years ago there, there were people that were discounting the importance of marriage or discounting the sanctity of marriage 
Some, some groups either disdained or prohibited marriage uh, because they had some false understanding of the flesh being inherently evil. You look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul gives warnings there to Timothy. Now, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There, in the first century, Paul says there are people who are going to forbid marriage. They're going to think it's wrong, it's sinful, it's, it's some lesser state than, than, than being unmarried. And, and you know, we, we look down through history, not, not too far from here, you got the Shaker Village over around Harrodsburg. You know, they, they, the men all lived over on this side of town, the women all lived over on this side of town, and the, and the, and the twain never met. And I guess they, they went extinct uh, because of that. But, and, and you've got these, uh, you know, the, the Catholic priesthood, celibacy, have to be celibate, can't, can't have a wife. I, you know, that, that there's this, this perception in Catholicism, I think, stemming from their whole concept of original sin, that, that we, we all are born with, with Adam's sin and that, that gets passed down through the sexual act, I, I guess. And, and they, they perceive that, that you know, the priests are celibate because that's, that's, that's a special gift from God. That's a little higher state of being than to be married. That's a little more pure. That's a little more holy than, than marriage is. That marriage is, is somehow perceived as being defiling in some way. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about marriage and uh, different aspects of that. And, and it, it seems to me that some of these early Christians, and, and I briefly mentioned this last night, that, that some of these early converts to Christianity in this pagan society in Greece you know, and, and, and here's my wife, and, and I'm now a follower of Jesus, and she's not. She's still worshiping Zeus or Apollo or whoever over here. And, and you know, do, am I still married to her? Is my marriage to her still valid? And, and Paul's saying, well, yes, it is. In verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. This isn't Paul's opinion. The wife should not separate from her husband. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving wife is made holy because unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Paul's having to argue the validity of marriage to the Corinthians. And the Hebrew writer is arguing the validity of marriage to his readers. And Paul is warning Timothy that people are going to come along and say marriage is bad and you shouldn't get married. And the Hebrew writer says marriage is to be held in honor. It's an honorable thing. It is a good thing. 
And that we need to realize its divine origins, not to rehash last night's sermon, but again, Jesus, He which made them, what God has joined together. This isn't just some thing that human beings dreamed up in their mind, and therefore we can change it and make it whatever we want it to be. This is something that originated with the mind of God. It comes, marriage comes from God. I will make him a helper fit for him, meet for him. That, that's God speaking, that, that he was going to create a partner for Adam that, that would be a perfect fit for him. Because, you know what? Men and women are different. Did you know that? Society wants us to forget that. Society wants to make us all androgynous and, 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 and you know, get, get rid of so-called toxic masculinity and, and say that we're, we're just all the same and we're going to be the same and you can just pick your, your own gender because of that. We're not the same. We, we think differently. We act differently. We, we have different tendencies, and, and that's because God designed those two parts to make a whole. Uh, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. Did he not make them one? Malachi 2.15. We read a second ago. Again, God. God's involved in this whole thing. God made them. God put them together. In the beginning, God created male and female. A man shall hold fast to his wife, Jesus. Marriage is of divine origin, and we should, we should appreciate it as a thing that, that comes from God, that, that we should aspire to make it as good as possible, to realize its divine origins and realize its seriousness. That marriage is, is to be a lifelong commitment. Romans chapter 7, verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. I'm bound to my wife. Bound, meaning, meaning chained, tied, cuffed. We, we, we are chained together in the eyes of God. We, we are to cleave to one another, be cemented together, glued to each other as one. Marriage is, is a serious thing. And, and again, Malachi 2, 16, God hates putting away. He hates divorce. And, and, and since marriage comes from God, and since marriage is a, is a lifelong commitment, then, then I need to work to make it the best that I can. I need to fulfill my, my side of the deal, my obligations. In Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a lot there. Of course, Paul, Paul points out he's making this, this comparison to Christ and the church, and, and we could study this whole passage of Scripture as, as a church of Jesus Christ. How do we relate to him? But, but there in the last sentence, he points out, hey, I, I'm talking about Christ and the church, but all this still applies to marriage. Everything I just said still applies to marriage. And, and there's a role of submission for wives to be in submission to their husbands in everything. Not just in the things I want to be in submission in, but, but in everything, Paul says. And, 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 there's the, and husbands are to have this love, uh, I, I, I want absolutely, totally what is the best for my wife because that's what Christ wanted for the church. He, Christ wants the church to be in splendor, without blemish. That should be my goal for my wife. And, and he talks about respect there in verse 33. To respect one another, for wives to respect their husbands. Every sitcom and every TV commercial and I'm exaggerating slightly, not, not every, but, you know, a whole lot of them. The wife is a genius. The husband is a bumbling idiot <laughs> who makes mistake after mistake. And the wife talks to all her friends about how dumb her husband is. <laughs> Everybody loves Raymond. That's the premise of that show in one sentence or two sentences. And... We have to respect each other. And I don't need to be going to work and telling all my guy friends all the dumb stuff my wife did. And it's not respectful. And, and the other way around, also, we, we should respect each other. 1 Peter uh, 3, 7, that, that we are to dwell with our wives with understanding and give honor to them. Kind of the, the opposite of... You know, the other side of the coin for what Paul's saying here about women respecting their husbands. Marriage is honorable among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Hebrews 13, 4. Uh, the bed, that, that's a euphemism. That, that's a word that means it stands in for another word. The writer's talking about sexual intimacy there when he talks about the bed is undefiled, the marriage bed. The sexuality in marriage is pure. It's pure. It's God's plan. 
That's the way God in, intended it to be. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 5, in verses 18 and 19, Solomon writing to the, to the younger man, he said, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Be intoxicated with your wife. Just be so enraptured with her. A song of Solomon. There, there's some kind of racy stuff, we might say, in Song of Solomon. Have you ever sat down and read it com completely? A lot of people just probably wonder, why in the world is this book even in the Bible? Well, what am I supposed to get from this? Well, and, and people have tried to say, well, it's metaphor for Christ and the church or this or that. And I, I think it is exactly what it presents itself to be. It is a love story about, about a bride and a groom and, and their you know, affection for each other, and, and, and they describe each other's bodies in, in detail and, and, and things like that. And I think it's just what it says it is, that that's, that's showing us what God thinks marriage is supposed to be about. And Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 7 you know, he, he talks about sexual immorality in chapter 6 and that it's wrong, it's sin. And, and he says to, in chapter 7 to avoid that. And the first thing he says in verse 1 is it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That, that's fine. That's okay. He's not saying that's better or worse than being married. He's saying it, it's good. If you don't want to get married, if you don't need to get married, that's fine. That's okay. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul says for us not to deprive one another of our sexual needs unless we agree to do so for a defined period of time. Because if we go beyond that, then Satan is going to start tempting one or the other, or both. Sex in marriage is not abnormal. It is God's norm. It's the way that God says it's supposed to be. But fornication and adultery... Now, those are defiling. Those are bad. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Um, whoremonger, you know, that's a word nobody uses in the 21st century. Com comes from the same root as the word fornication, which is another word that nobody uses in the 21st century. Probably nobody under 40 uh, that doesn't go to church has any idea what that word even means. But the, the Greek root is pornos, 
from whence we get pornography in modern English. And it's, it's one who engages in illicit intercourse. Well, what's illicit mean? Illicit means not permitted, unlawful. Which takes us back again to the discussion of unlawful to who? Well, to God, in the eyes of God from last night. Unlawful sexual intercourse. Uh, the, the word adulterer, the Greek moikos, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, one who has illicit intercourse with a spouse of another. And, and you know, there, we, we, we discount marriage as a society and we promote sexuality in every other avenue through literature, through entertainment, through music. Internet, TV, movies, printed matter, everything, you know, we're driving this uh, ideal in the eyes of the world that everybody just ought to be out having sex with a bunch of people and, and not be engaging in marriage. And again, God's way is orderly and beneficial to us and makes us better. And man trying to, to outdo God creates disorder and chaos with every, everything that he promotes. And Romans chapter 1, you know, Paul talks about how the world forgot about God, even though the existence of God is, is clearly seen by the creation around us there in verses 18, 19, 20. And that once they, they forgot about God or changed the nature of God into some sort of statue or painting or idol that they bow down and worship, then, then they just start making their own rules. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Talks about women exchanging the natural, uh, natural relations for those that are against nature. Men with men, women with women. Verses 26, 27, homosexuality. And he talks about various other sins as you go on down through the rest of the chapter and that those things are worthy of death to say Paul, because all sin leads to death, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 13, 4, there is not a more clear statement in Scripture that sexual relations within marriage are pure and outside of marriage is wrong. It's wrong. Sin. Cheating on your spouse. Sin. Premarital sex. Sin. Living together without marriage, um, prostitution, homosexuality, uh, polygamy, and, and you may say, well, this kind of overlapped. You talked about some of these things last night, Randy. Well, yeah, I, I, I did from Matthew 19, but I, I think we need to talk about these things. I think as Christians, we're kind of squeamish and kind of embarrassed to talk about these things sometimes. But the world is talking about them. And the world is promoting their own standards and, and disregarding God's. Pedophilia. 
you know, adults having sexual contact with children, that, that's the last big taboo that's out there in, in society, and people are trying to, you know, to knock that one down as we speak. Hebrew writer says, God will judge. God will judge those who commit sin. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, starting verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Paul says God has called us to purity, to live pure lives, holy lives. And, and if I'm uh, committing adultery with my friend's wife, I, I'm sinning against her and I'm sinning against him. I'm defrauding my, my neighbor. If I'm doing that, and, and that's, that's wrong, that's evil. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know, Paul talks at length there. Uh, Corinth was a big city with, with a lot of idol worship, and, and there were temple prostitutes in these pagan temples, and, and as part of the worship to the Greek gods and goddesses, you might go plop out some money and, and have sex with a prostitute there at the temple. I mean, that, that's the world that this church in Corinth is trying to survive in. And, and Paul says, uh, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I belong to God. God, God created humanity, and God sent his son to redeem me and you as individuals from sin. He had bought a, has bought us back from servitude to Satan, and, and we belong to him. And so we, we have to do what he wants us to do. Excuse me. Uh, in Jude, verse 7, Jude talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. J 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Unnatural desire. Uh, talking about homosexuality. And again from last night, we, we don't intend any hatred, any ill will toward anyone. We should treat all people with love and respect. But we have to state the truth of God's word. That certain behaviors are wrong and need to be avoided. Because there, there's eternal stakes here. Revelation 21 verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Serious, serious matters. We want to avoid that fate at all costs, and we want to help others to avoid that fate at all costs. Marriage is an institution created by God to serve His purposes, to, to fulfill our lives, to make us better, to help us to, to serve Him better. It, it is a gift from God to humankind. We, we should not try to change it. We should not try to corrupt it, defile it, do away with it. Those who do so are subject to God's judgment. Marriage is a gift. God has given us an even greater gift. And that greater gift is His Son. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, God is our Creator and He loves us and, and we, we rebelled and sinned against Him and, and He still loves us. And he's done something for us that we could not do for ourselves to pay the penalty for our sin. And his son coming to this world, living a sinless life, and yet suffering at the hands of evil people and being crucified. But that could not hold him. He's raised from the dead, and he's ascended back to heaven, and he rules at the right hand of God. And he offers us a way to take the, the guilt and the shame and the penalty of our sin and wipe that away through the gospel. And he says to go to the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And we're going to sing the, the song that was selected and if you're here and we can help you to come to Jesus, to find the, the forgiveness of sin that is, is found in his name and to, be, to become a child of God and be added to his church, that great institution, then we would uh, stand happy to assist you if you'll come while we stand and sing.